Good morning, both. Well, uh, there's an old maritime tradition and an adage that says the captain goes down with the ship. You're familiar with this, I would hope. Um, But it's really something if you think about it. The captain goes down with the ship. To have that kind of devotion that you would take on the responsibility that I will go down with this ship before I allow anyone else to be put behind me. I will put myself last, that everyone else will make it to safety, and I will go to the depths of the ocean with this thing. Um, To own something at that level, to be that devoted to something is really admirable. To be devoted is defined by the dictionary as to give all or a large part of one's time or resources to a person, activity, or a cause. Um, But you just admire that kind of devotion that a captain would say, I'm going down with the ship. Like, I'm that devoted to this. Um, And when I I think of captains going down the ships, I think of pirates because, you know, Florida, Caribbean, and and I just love pirates. But um, pirates are uh, just fun to me. Uh, I read a book once that just kind of destroyed it for me, but I tried to block that out of my life and remember just the fun things. But um, pirates, you know, Captain Morgan? Um, When I say Captain Morgan, some of you may think historical Sir Captain Henry Morgan. I named my dog. He's a dachshund, Captain Morgan. Um, We call him Henry, though. But um, Captain Morgan uh, may actually just make you think of a stance and a particular liquid beverage. Um, But Captain Morgan was not actually a pirate. Um, I mean, let's be honest, he was a pirate, but some pirates were sanctioned by states around the world, and they, because they were sanctioned by states, they wouldn't be called pirates, they were called privateers, and so they were basically hired hands to be a nuisance to other foreign powers, and so they would just do pirate things, except with the backing of a nation state that would say, yeah, you're ours, go mess with them, and so um, they would do all the same things, but Captain Henry Morgan was quite the successful privateer or pirate, if we're honest. Um, So you may know the stories of him, all of his adventures at sea, but also attacking some land. Like he's the one who famously sacked Panama and just did like crazy things. Um, Even while he was still alive, one person wrote a publication about some of his just just brutal barbaric exploits, um, and he sued him <laughs> for libel. Um, you didn't mess with this guy. Uh, but he was so successful because, you know, like when you're successful as a pirate, um, it's quite lucrative. And he was actually pretty smart too. Um, so he used a lot of his success to purchase some sugar plant plantations in Jamaica. Um, so he's a plantation owner. Um, because he was so successful and there was this war between England and Spain, um, England actually knighted him. That's why he's called Sir. Um, he is actually a knighted man. Um, and he even served as lieutenant governor of Jamaica for some time. Um, so to go from pirate, privateer, captain... You know, captain goes down with a ship to, now he's this land-owning lieutenant governor of Jamaica, and he dies walking on land. And I don't know about you, but I think, like, that's kind of sad. Like, maybe he would be as cool as Edward Teacher Blackbeard if he had died on his ship. Like, the captain's supposed to go down with a ship, but he doesn't. He dies a quasi-politician, and he's buried in Palisado Cemetery, which was a sand kind of landscape that actually served as a natural protective barrier for um, Port Royal. Um, Port Royal, if you don't know, was like the hub of all piracy in the Caribbean. Um, This is where most pirates, privateers would come and make landfall, repair things, and store up their treasure. And so it was just a dreadfully, awfully wicked city. Like, it was a bad place to be. Um, But it's in Port Royal, in this Palisados Cemetery, that Captain Henry Morgan is buried. Do you know what happens to Port Royal? We have less than a third of it left now. Because there's an earthquake in 1692. 
This earthquake on this city that is here on the Caribbean, this harbor city, this port, is so much sand, and they had built so much on the sand that when this earthquake struck, it liquefied the sand, that all of the violent shaking and the water level being so close that the sand literally turned to a liquid. The sand is recorded as being moving in waves, and people and buildings in their entirety would just suddenly sink into the sand. And they lost most of the city in a matter of moments. That an entire building, full of people and everything, within two minutes, accounts say, was just gone. Off in the ocean. And I think that's kind of a beautiful irony. The captain goes down with the ship, like it or not. That his cemetery, in its entirety, sunk into the ocean. And so Captain Morgan is gone, into the depths of the ocean. Whether he had the devotion to follow through with it or not, there he goes. But it's just so striking to think that we can be devoted to something, to give all or large part of one's time or resources to a person, activity, or cause. And so I want to ask you, what are you devoted to? When you look at your life, what are you truly devoted to? What are you devoted to? What has your devotion? As we launch this series going through um, this idea of devoted, um, I want to start with just looking kind of honestly, and this can be a bit hurtful, at the religious landscape that we live in, okay? So track with me. There's some numbers here. I'm not a numbers guy, but they're helpful at times. I'm so old. So Pew Research published some findings and conclusions stating, since the 1990s, large numbers of Americans have left Christianity to join the growing ranks of U.S. adults who describe their religious identity as atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular. Uh, To give you an idea of this in numerical form, in 1972, 92% of Americans said that they were Christian. In 2020, that number was down to just 64%. COVID-19, this global pandemic, only accelerated that for us. On average, Protestant churches are now reporting that they're back to about 85% of their pre-COVID levels. So you imagine how this is going, what the trajectory is, how quickly Christianity is not the prominent religion. It is not the prominent way of life in our nation. It's taking the back burner. Uh, Locally, if we look at this, um, Barna did this famous study. um, It's a few years old now, but things have only gotten worse. But in 2017, Barna released a study on the most unchurched and dechurched cities in America and the Orlando, Daytona, Melbourne region, which includes us. It's a regional study, so including us here, Orlando is the ninth most unchurched city in the United States, at 51% being unchurched. They just, they don't get any exposure to church. The number six most dechurched city in the United States, at 43%. So think about that, 51% of our population has no activity in church, does not go to church. And then 43% of our population once was part of a church, but has walked away and says, not for me. You add those two numbers up, I'm not good at math, but 51 and 43, that's 94%. And yet we have this travesty of churches thinking that we're in competition. So just get people to come from this church to that church. And no, do we see that Jesus is not joking when he says the fields are white with harvest. So pray for what? Pray for laborers. Pray for people who will obediently go out, who will devote their life to this. Uh, The Hartford Institute gave us some statistics. It says, in 2010, the number of churches in the United States versus the population gave us a ratio of one church for every 1,000 people in this country. So one church for every 1,000 people in this country. 
Now, mind you, the average church in the United States is more like 75 people. So one church for every 1,000 people in 2010, to keep pace with the growth of the population, we would need to plant or start 2,100 churches a year just to keep that ratio of one church for every 1,000 people. But we know churches are also dying. Churches close every year. And so in the last decade, while we were planting about 4,000 churches a year, which is like, yes, that's awesome. That's like double what we really need. But we are closing 3,700 a year. So if we're adding 4,000, closing 3,700, that means there's only a net gain of 300 churches a year while the population continues to skyrocket. 300 is a long way off from 2,100. And again, keep in mind, that is just to keep pace with having a church, one church for every 1,000 people. And that can sound really dire. And we are not driven by fear because perfect love drives out fear but we should see the urgency to this mission. We should see that we should be devoted to this calling, that we must multiply. We must plant more churches. We must tell all of our neighbors the hope of the gospel. There's a God who saves. There's a God who loves. But more and more what we see is that it's getting harder and harder to do this. What are the reasons for this? Why are so many walking away from the church? Why are so many just not devoted in the way that we would hope? Um, I think there are many, many reasons, but I'll point to three in large part. Um, one is a shifting cultural landscape. And by landscape, I really mean values. The, the values of our culture are shifting. Um, Christendom is the idea that, that it once was beneficial to you to be a Christian. And so Christianity was the prominent religion, the dominant religion, and so it largely defined things. Um, the expectation for many, 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 many years in this country was that you would be in church on Sunday morning, that you would gather with God's people and you would learn the language, you would do all these things, you'd put the Jesus fish on your business because, hey, it sells, it builds trust. There once was a time when this was so beneficial that it actually became nominal that like you just did this out of religious duty and it was culturally assumed it was beneficial. That's not the case anymore. In fact, now, it may very well hurt you for people to know that you are a Christian because largely we are now viewed as hurtful people. That we can view you, be viewed as bigots, as intolerant, as all kinds of slanderous things that we are not. We are to be known by our love for each other. And yet, so much of the world watching now does not like what they see of people who say there is a truth, and there is a God, and we are sinners in desperate need of a Savior that is offensive to the modern ear. And so I think that is part of it. It's no longer socially helpful. Not to mention, when you look at mindset, how, how defined or how shaped our worldview is by this kind of post-enlightenment, post-modern thought process, that it's very much about naturalism. That what I can see and just replicate in a lab is what I will believe. And so the idea of the supernatural, so outlandish. But if I can see what I can prove with science and all this stuff, and there's so many things that we could say about all that. But the reality is that even for many of us as believers who would believe in life everlasting, that this is just a short time, and what we do in this short time we have is actually going to have an effect on all of eternity it's still so hard for us to see beyond what is just now. That right now, I need that promotion. Because in this life, I need my retirement account to get to this level. 
or I need to get into that neighborhood because that's when I have arrived, or I need to have that relationship, or I need to have that gadget. It's just, we're so bound up in just what is the here and the now, this kind of naturalistic thought that it's about this, and then we impose that on our children. I mean, think of what are the things that really have traction in your home? What are the things that you show have great value? Is it because I'll pay hundreds of dollars for a math tutor because I've got to make sure you get a scholarship so that you can go to college, so that you have all these opportunities and everything? And then what do I do when it comes to your soul? I will live on for eternity. I'll get you a coach in sports. I'll get extra time on the field. I'll do all these things. But then will I schedule a meeting with my pastor? Because you had some tough questions that I'd like for him to talk into. Do we have time for that? Well, we've got to run. We've got this on this night and this on this night. It's just all this stuff. But it's shifting cultural values. And that is tied to the next one. That's accessibility. The things are changing because of our accessibility. Anthropologists, sociologists have looked at this for years now. But the, the age or the advent of the automobile is what made America, America that you can now drive. And so we have suburbs, this, this urban sprawl, and it gives us access to things that we never thought were possible. When prior to the automobile, you did almost everything you did in life within seven miles of your home. And now we think, well, how many of you drive four times that much on a daily basis? Because we've got to go here, and then we've got to get back home, and then we've got to go here, and then we've got to go here, and it's just all over the place because it's available to us. Transportation and the opportunities that are afforded to us by our affluence. That probably not a lot of us would say, like, I'm doing really well financially right now. Like, I'm awesome. And yet we look at us compared to most of the world that's living on less than $3 a day. Like, we are so rich. We have so many opportunities. And so now, oh yeah, we can, we can do the travel team and we can be gone on the weekend. And that's okay because guilt has no place in Christianity. So don't feel guilty about this. We're gonna go. And just all these things. And I'm not trying to put guilt on you. So we have to be honest about things have changed for us. What are we devoted to? And this one is personal. I can tell you in planting this church, for four years now, you know what the greatest obstacle I have come against is? The greatest obstacle and my deep desire to see, I want to be like Paul and say, I want, I aim to present you fully mature in Christ. What is standing in the way more than anything else for seeing us grow together in unity, grow in the mission, grow in obedience, grow in glory from one degree to another, conforming to the image of the Son? You know what it is? Our schedules. Just time. And I am in that. It's so hard, right? I think like, I need to add something else. Like if the pastor's calling us to be more devoted to something, he's calling us to more time, and we have no margin for that. There's just no time. I have these demands, and just the list goes on and on. I keep one on my phone, this, this list of like, here are the priority things that I need to be working on right now. And it's so, like, it used to overwhelm me. Now I just kind of chuckle when, like, I can take it, and it's like, scroll, and it just keeps going. Like, what is that? We have no time. It's the FOMO, the fear of missing out. That because there's so many opportunities what if I miss out on a better opportunity, which is the FOBO, a fear of a better opportunity? So I'm afraid I'm going to miss out, but I'm afraid that I'm actually going to miss out on something better, and so I'm terrified to commit fully to one thing. It's hard. 
But again, what are you devoted to? In a culture, um, Pastor Tim shared a podcast on uh, Ortega, a philosopher, who, speaking many, many years ago, just beautifully, kind of prophetically talked about our current culture with what he calls the mass man. But this idea that like, we're so wound up and bound to the things that are just big and grabbing our attention constantly. And we have access to so much because of the digital revolution that we think we're experts in everything. And so we are so shallow because we're so spread thin that what are we truly devoted to? So all of that tension, let's come today and see if we should be devoted people. What do we devote ourselves to? Because it's easy to give the Sunday school answer, we should be devoted to Jesus. But what does that actually mean? And so I think as followers of Jesus, we should look historically at the followers of Jesus who actually literally follow Jesus around physically and the people who are here just prior to that. Because they're going to have a really good idea of what did Jesus say this is going to look like. And so we should look to that. And so we're going to do that looking in the history of the early church and what we know as the book of Acts. So if you will turn to Acts chapter 2 with me, we're going to spend a few weeks just kind of diving in and breaking down a short passage, looking at what did the early church devote themselves to. So Acts chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 42. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it reads like this. This is Luke writing a history of the early church, the advancement of the gospel um, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So chapter 2, verse 42 says, they, meaning the church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. They devoted themselves. And so each week in this series, we'll look at one of the things that they devoted themselves to. And this week, we'll start with the first one. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. They devoted themselves. Devoted, again, means to give all or a large part of one's time and resources to a person, activity, or cause. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. We, too, as a church, ought to devote ourselves to the apostles' teachings. And so that gives me three questions that I want to answer. Three questions. One, what is the apostles' teaching? Two, what does devotion to this look like? And three, what does the devotion to this do to us? So we'll start with the first one. What is the apostles' teaching? What is the apostles' teaching? We have a beautiful creed that actually formulaically summarizes what the apostles' teaching is. You want to guess what it's called? The apostles' creed. It's a creed about what the apostles taught. It's really quite convenient. The apostles' creed. Um, I want to start with this. This actually dates back at least to 140 AD. So we're getting way far back into the early church, very close to the time of this, that this creed would largely be in formulation. They're coming up with this. They're summarizing, condensing, what is it that we teach? What is it that we believe? So the Apostles' Creed reads like this. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. 
I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And there's so much packed into that that we could certainly do a very long series just unpacking what is in the Apostles' Creed. And I would encourage you to explore it. Um, Make it a point of conversation with your home group, things like that. But as we look at that, and we have to ask, where do they get all that? Why? Why are these the things that they would say, this is what we believe, this is what we're devoted to? Where do they get all that? They get it from Scripture. It's all from Scripture. And so yes, much of this time, in these early years, they have the Old Testament, as we call it. That was their Scriptures. And yet from the Old Testament, that's where they're creating these doctrines from hearing the teachings of Jesus and the apostles themselves now writing these things that become part of the scriptures and we call those the New Testament. And so from those collective scriptures, they formulate this creed, say this is what we believe, all based on scripture, scripture being this collection of 66 different books and yet they're all saying the same story. It's the story of God and his work in redeeming and relating to us as humans. It's about God, but it's about God and how he relates to us. It's his salvific work. It's his work to his own glory that we are swept up in. It's his glory. It's our good. Jesus said that it all points to him. You know that? Jesus said all of the scriptures are pointing to him. At one point, he's having this back and forth constantly with the scholars of the day who would have known the Old Testament, like literally you could walk up to them and they could just blurt out the entirety of the Old Testament. Like every bit of it memorized. Like that's profound. That's amazing that they would have that kind of devotion capacity. They knew the scriptures and yet Jesus arguing with them, he's like, hey, you know what? You're searching the scriptures because in them you think you find eternal life and you're right. But where you're wrong is you've missed it. They all point to me. That what Jesus is saying is all of the scriptures, and so at that time in that context, he's talking about all of the Old Testament. He's saying all that history in Genesis, all those, all those books telling you the history of God and his people, his creation. Do you know all that history is pointing to me? And all of that law telling you what is right and wrong, what you should and should not do. Did you know that all of that is pointing to me? All of that wisdom literature, all that beautiful poetry, all those wise sayings, all that stuff, did you know that all of that's actually pointing to me? You know those prophets that were so weird? You love them now, but at one point we all hated them. Did you know that they're all pointing to me? Somehow you've missed that. And so we can look back and see how the entirety, the totality of scripture is all pointing beautifully to Jesus and these ways that show us we are broken. We are created by a good God who loves us and he's gracious towards us so that even when we rebel against him in our sin, having fallen short of the glory of God, we don't measure up. He says, I love you and I'll make a way. And you need to know, I'll give you the law, you need to know that you cannot make the way on your own. You cannot measure up. So here's the law to show you that you're broken. But like an x-ray machine, it shows you that it's broken, but it can do nothing to repair it. You need a salvation. You need a rescue that's outside of yourself. And it's all pointing to this new covenant, this idea that God himself would be our salvation because we continue to fail over and over and over and break these covenants. And God says, there's a new covenant coming. I will write my law on your hearts. I will make you follow me. I will keep you from turning away. He will do all of it. And Jesus comes and he says he is the new covenant. 
Jesus, the Son of God, co-equal with the Father and the Spirit, from eternity past, he steps into his own creation that he created, takes on flesh as a man. Now this is the God-man, and he lives a sinless life as a true human, and yet also true God, sinless. He becomes the perfect sacrifice that all the history and the law that was about this sacrificial system that some blood has to be shed to atone for your sins. Jesus becomes the final for all sacrifice that his innocence would be given to us. His righteousness would be given to us. And our punishment, our sin, our debt would be nailed on him. Him being nailed to a cross. It would be paid in full. The true human the second, the greater Adam would die so that we could have life in him as he comes back to life because this is also God. And he has defeated death and sin and he reigns forevermore. He is alive and he's calling us into life and we must see that. We must respond to this good news. We must repent. We must see we are broken, wretched sinners and we have to confess that. We have to turn from our sin and turn towards God. That is repentance. We are called to repentance. And in repentance, as we turn toward God, we turn toward him in belief. You must believe that he is gracious and loving and that he did this for you, that he died on a cross to set you free from your sin, to offer you forgiveness and to live with him forever. And now that you have that belief, now you live in obedience. That this faith that brings us to life now changes us. We have a new heart and we're to walk in step with his spirit that he is with us and he's changing us and we listen to him and we obey him. And so you have this gospel that calls you to repent, to believe and to obey. And that is what the totality of scriptures is telling us. This is the story of God coming in to bring us back to him and it's all to his glory. So we must turn from our sin, we must believe Jesus, we must obey him. All of it pointing to that. So church, let's be devoted to scripture. Let's be a church that is devoted to scripture. So like the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, we too can devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching by devoting ourselves to the scriptures, to know the scriptures. That leads us to our next question. What does devotion to scripture look like for us? What's that gonna look like? We are so skeptical as a society. Like, We all have questions about this book or this collection of books. Like there are things in here that don't make sense. There are things in here that make us cringe. There are things in here that are upsetting. There are things in here that I don't know if I can accept that. You shouldn't be afraid of that. But what strikes me as odd, and again, this is not to put guilt on us, but we have to be honest about this. How many of us have questions and doubts about this And yet knowing that at least the claim of this is that this is the very word of God. And yet we've never even actually read the whole thing. Like, is that wild or what? That we're willing to have questions about something that we've never actually given a chance to read in its entirety? We devote ourselves to scripture. Let's devote ourselves to scripture because scripture is inspired by God. These doctrines of inspiration, inerrancy, and authority. The the inspiration of Scripture, the the inerrancy of Scripture, this is what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16. He says, all Scripture, how much of Scripture? All Scripture. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training, and righteousness. And if you're a really quick thinker, you're thinking like, 
But in context, they didn't have the New Testament in its entirety yet. So what is that scripture? He's speaking about the Old Testament. And yet you have Peter and Paul writing things like, as we write these things, the scriptures. They call what they're writing scriptures. Then we know that it's more than that. And we can trust, and I would encourage you, dive into canonicity. Like, how do we develop the canon of scripture to know, can we trust these 66 books to actually be scripture? And over and over and over, the more I've studied it, the more I'm like, yes, we absolutely can. Thousands upon thousands of manuscripts that we can hold together and say, some going back to just within a couple decades to centuries of the original writings and say, wow, they're amazing at how much they line up. And the ways that they vary, largely it's just like a copying error. Like, oh, they forgot to put that little mark there. And so it's easy to see if I've got nine letters that I stand here and choose nine of you to say, hey, copy everything I'm saying. And I start talking and I get a little carried away and you're like, oh, I think I got it. But nine of you all tried to write the very sentence that I said. And we pull those nine letters up here and I read all nine of them. One of them is a little different than the other eight. Do we question whether or not what I said was captured? No. It's easy for us to put them together and say, we know what's actually true. And in the same way, like, we know with confidence we have the very word of God that was inspired by God. God breathed to us. We can trust it. We have his word given to us. Uh, John Frame, a theologian, he says, when we say that the Bible is inerrant, we mean that the Bible makes good on its claims. That's a really fancy way for a very smart man to say something that I can't say, but I'll say it. Like, we have to learn to read the Bible literally, not literally. There are times in scripture when you should read literally. But all the time when reading scripture, you should read literally. And so, for example, beautiful day outside. But let's say you start to hear the thunder rumbling and everything, and it just starts pouring. And I say, whoa, guys, it's raining cats and dogs outside. The podcast is recorded. A hundred years from now, someone listens to a podcast recording of Beloved Church on this day, and they hear Pastor Kevin say, it's raining cats and dogs. And they say, wow, these people were so dumb. How did they not know cats and dogs were land animals? In the same way, we can do this. We can read into another culture and their context and assume the same things are true of them that are true for us. And it's not fair. And so we must read literally to know that they're going to have colloquialisms that don't mean the same thing that they do to us. We have to read things and understand that when they say things, they may be speaking in poetry. And we can't assume that they're meaning that to be exactly what it says. That when the gospel writers, you know, there's four gospels, and most of them are overlapping in many ways. And when they record the same event, and you read it in one gospel, and you read the same event in another gospel, and you're like, but did he say it like that, or did he say it like that? That's not, it, it can't be true. And yet to know that in the first century Palestinian context, to record someone, to quote someone, is not to get it verbatim. We think in our mindset that to quote someone is you have to get it verbatim, exactly how they said it. But culturally, it was 100% okay to quote someone in a way that just captured what they said, not verbatim. And so there's so many things like this that we have to learn to read scripture literally, and then it doesn't crumble. In fact, it's just all the more compelling and beautiful. So we must devote ourselves to scripture like this. It looks like believing this is the inspired, inerrant word of God. And that means submitting to that. Because it is the authority of God. 
If God speaks, and God is God, meaning he is the greatest being, the supreme being, there is no one like him, ought we not subject ourselves to what he says? If God is to be God, and I am not, then I should lower myself. I should humble myself before him and obey what he says. His word is the very word of God himself, his voice directly and authoritatively to us, so we must listen to it, we must obey it, but then go beyond that, please, beloved, and enjoy it. To hear the voice of God, to know that he wants to talk to you, that he has so much to say to you. And he says, he speaks to us in many ways. He speaks to us in creation. He speaks to us through his spirit who is with us, but he also directly speaks in this special divine revelation through his word that he has promised will not pass away. And so listen and enjoy the voice of God. And then last question. If we're gonna devote ourselves to scripture, what does devotion to scripture do to us? You know what it does to us? It changes us. It changes us. If you think like this is the word of God, and this is uh, original, at least from my knowledge, to Eugene Peterson, but I just love the point he makes. That, you know, communication, our words, our use of words can either communicate or create. Sometimes it's just informative. Most of the time when I'm talking, I'm just informing, I'm communicating. And yet every time that God talks, he's not just communicating, he's creating. And this goes back to the creation when he speaks things into existence. But then every time we encounter the voice of God, he's creating something, that his word changes us. This is the way the prophet Isaiah, um, God said this through him in Isaiah 55. He says, for just as rain and snow fall from heaven and do not return there without saturating the earth and making it germinate and sprout and providing seed to sow and food to eat, so my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. You will indeed go out with joy and be peacefully guided. The mountains and the hills will break into singing before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Hear this. Instead of the thorn bush, a cypress will come up. And instead of the briar, a myrtle will come up. This will stand as a monument for the Lord, an everlasting sign that will not be destroyed. We can do some weird things with plants. I don't understand it, but the whole grafting idea, like, you can take one fruit tree and another fruit tree and suddenly you're getting both fruits and it's like, well, I don't, I don't think this is okay. But I, like, it's amazing. You know what you cannot do? You cannot take a thorn bush and say, let's make it a cypress tree, majestic, towering over with this beautiful wood. You sand that down, you polish it up. Oh, there's nothing like it. So strong. The depth of that. The patterns, like, it's, a, it's just majestic. Go try. Take your thorn bush. Do your very best to turn that into a cypress. <laughs> Go take the briar and say, I don't like briars. That's awful. You know what, briar? Why don't you just become a myrtle? You become beautiful for us. We cannot do this, but God can. And what does God employ to do this? His word. His word that comes from the heavens, from his own mouth, and it comes and we have it. This changes us, and it changes us in a way that nothing else can change us. So we are changed by the word of God. It changes us. This is why 1 Peter 2.2, Peter says, like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow up into your salvation. 
grow up into your salvation. You know how you do that? The word. The word is how that happens. Be immersed in the word of God. It changes us. Uh, if you've been around Beloved Church for any length of time, uh, we, we talk about like, I'm convinced the three things that change us more than anything, and that's not to say it's not scripture, but I actually think this is how scripture largely changes us. Story, habits, and relationships. Think philosophically with me for a moment. Story, habits, and relationships change us. Not just Christians, humans. The story that you believe, the narrative in today's lingo of what you believe about all this stuff, how you frame everything that comes into your head, the story that you believe shapes you. What is the story that you believe? And our story is the gospel. It is God's story. It is the scriptures. We read his story. He tells us what is true. We know how to view the world and all these things because he has told us. We have a way to view everything and it is through the gospel. This is why Paul said to the Corinthians, he said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Like, he wrote that in a letter where he talks about some wild things, like one guy sleeping with somebody he's related to. He's writing about all these spiritual gifts and their use of them. He's writing you know, the famous chapter on what love is. He's defining love for us. He's writing about how we're to have head coverings in prayer and like, Whoa, what is that? And he's writing about how we're to take communion and some people are dying because they're taking communion in the wrong way. Like He's writing about all these things. Like, so how does he start the book saying, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified? Clearly, Paul, you knew a lot of other things. So what he's saying here is, this is the lens through which I view everything. This is my story. This is the story that will shape everything. That everything I talk about is through the lens of, Jesus loves me so much that he died for me. And then when I see you, the way I see you, you were made in the image of God and you messed that up just like I did. But Jesus loves us so much that he died for us. I know nothing else, but this I know. Christ and him crucified. He loves us. He is our salvation. All of scripture pointing to Jesus. This is our story. That changes us. So story and the habits. A habitus is a Latin way of saying like, how do you operate? Like, who are you? What do you do? But habits shape us. Um, Charles Duhigg wrote in The Power of Habit, it's a book, uh, but he explains that a keystone habit, like creating a new habit, serves as a catalyst for other good habits. Uh, for instance, when someone uh, begins the, the habit of exercise, like, man, I'm just, it's going to be hard, but I'm going to start exercising. So I put it on my calendar, block out some time, I'm going to start exercising. That is a new habit, and you start that habit, and you know what follows? Suddenly, that cake, oh, it looks so delicious and I'm so hungry, but do I want to undo everything I just did? And that one habit leads to another habit. It leads to another habit, and it starts to form our life, a full habitus. Our habits shape us. Scripture gives us our habits. Scripture tells us this is the way to live and operate in this world. And then lastly, relationships. Uh, one, of the, one of the groups that I, I so love um, in the story of the book of Acts, um, the Bereans, as Paul comes to the Bereans, and as he encounters them and he starts to preach, it says that they were devoted to the word. Like they, they studied the scriptures, and they heard this gospel, this good news that Paul was preaching. And what do they do with it? Being people who are so devoted to studying scripture, I said, well, let's hold that against this. And what they found was, yes, 
that does beautifully align. And so they receive the gospel, but they tested everything by the word of God. That we, in our relationships, should be like the Bereans. That we are devoted to the word of God, and by it we can test everything. And we can know how we are to operate and live a life that is glorifying to God. And like the, the parachute game, you know, get the ball on the parachute and all the kids circle around it and everybody all together now, you pull back. And that parachute in the middle, like scripture, namely the gospel, is the thing that as we all hold to it, it holds us together, it unites us, and it accomplishes the mission of launching this further into the world. And so our relationships centered on that, grounded on something as solid as the word of God. And the word of God, this gospel, is all pointing to this wonderful love story. There's a God who loves us. And we talk about this incessantly around here. But love begets love. As I see the vertical love of God for me, it overflows in horizontal love for you. And it can be like God's love for me, that it's grace. It's undeserved so I can forgive you and you can forgive me. We have the capacity to do so because we see the way that God loves us and forgives us. And so we fall deeper and deeper in love together in these relationships because relationships change things. My undergraduate in social sciences, I studied a lot of sociology, but one of my favorite sociology professors, every class would just hammer into us as we'd hear these wild stories and just like start to explore why would someone do that and things like that. But he'd say, you never underestimate the power of a social situation. We will do amazing things when we're around other people that we never thought we would do. That can be good or bad. Relationships change us. Scripture calls us into a relationship with God. And it calls us into a new kind of relationship together. So let's be devoted. Because in our postmodern, increasingly post-Christian context, that's just constantly swaying all over the place. We can be grounded. We can know that we stand on solid ground. Let's not be caught like those in Port Royal who thought everything's great. Can you imagine walking down that street when suddenly things start to shake and the seemingly solid ground beneath your feet turns to liquid and you plunge down into the depths of the ocean? Or like Jesus said, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great clash. Let's be a church devoted to scripture. That means we will listen and we will obey and we will enjoy hearing God's very voice to be devoted to the apostles' teachings. Tell us of a God who loves us so much that he came to rescue us. They tell us of a God who loves us so much that he would supernaturally reveal this good news and preserve it for us in his written word. So let's be a people devoted to his word. So skeptic, seeker, stumbling or doubting saint, I want to ask, will you believe this good news? Will you believe this gospel? There's a God who loves you and he's come to save. Will you devote your life to him? A follower of Jesus, who do you need to share this good news with? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. Uh, love that drove you to send your son. And Jesus, your love that drove you to a cross because it was a joy. 
you saw to the other side, to have us in loving relationship with you and spirit, that your power would enable all of this in love again. We love you. Thank you for your word. God, forgive us for, for not taking it seriously so often. God, I ask that you would give this church such a deep, deep hunger and longing to hear from you constantly, that we would be people devoted to it, we would enjoy it, we would understand it because your spirit is with us and you, spirit, are to lead and guide us into all truth. Do so. Help us. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus.